I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You've got part of the History family in the house tonight because it's Zach and Beth on presenting duties. Hello, Beth. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. I'm good. It's starting to become a bit of a regular feature us two, isn't it? How many of these things in the last two weeks <laughs> oh i'm i'm losing count but the the one with sarah jane went down particularly well um it might have been all of the banter about you know fixations on unclad ankles um that's a whole story for another day if you haven't listened to that then go back and and avail yourself um it's a revelation um but who are we yeah. talking to today because we're in a very very different place although kind of i kind of feel like i might just have something intelligent to say on this you, I mean, you might do, because it's sort of something that appeals to, to the both of us, really, I think. Um, so we're joined today by James Nelson. Um, so James is an author. He's written a book that we will be discussing today. He's also a qualified solicitor, and he joined the Army Legal Corps in 1982, where he rose to the rank of colonel, eventually retiring in 2015. Um, And his book that he's discussing with us today, Military Operations from Kosovo to Kabul, which will be absolutely fascinating. So, James, welcome to History Hack. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So let's start off at the the start. It's always a good place to begin. Um, So can you tell us the the origins of your story? So obviously you, you served, as we said, in the Army Legal Corps. What made you want to serve and then focus upon military law? Um, well, I kind of stumbled into the law um, by default almost. Um, first, I got sort of A-levels that seemed to suggest a law degree would be a good idea. And then having done a law degree, I thought it might make sense to go and finish the job off by getting qualified as a solicitor. Um, and I spent about uh, 12 months in private practice having qualified. Um 
And I thought, gosh, it's pretty boring, actually. Um, and um, I need to do something a bit more interesting. And I had uh, spent some time um, in a gap year after I left school um, with the Gurkhas, um, which is kind of what my how my book begins. Um, and I'd enjoyed myself. I thought the army was a great way of life. Um, and the army legal course seemed therefore like an obvious possibility to spice up my legal career a bit. Um, and so that's how it, it all began. I, um, in those days, the army legal call was very small. There were only about 35 legal officers serving. Um, and they didn't really have a sophisticated recruiting program because you don't really need one when you, when you've got numbers as small as that. Um, so, I made contact and um, and um, following my interview and all the rest of it, I was in. Um, and um, I didn't look back, really. I, um, I certainly don't regret packing up private practice. I'm sure it's great floats for many people's boats and you make a lot more money usually than you do in the army. But uh, I had a very interesting career. Yeah. And, and so as part of that, you, you've described that you were what a sergeant at Santos referred to as a three-week wonder. And I mean, I, I don't know that term. So what, what's meant by a three-week wonder? And then did you experience any stigma off the back of that compared to those who maybe had spent an extensive period of time at Santos? Well, a three-week wonder was their highly amusing term for um, those of us who passed out of that course because it was a three-week course um and um whereas whereas the normal cadet course um for mainstream military officers was in those days i'm not sure exactly but something around about nine months and to, to these days it's a year um but we were known as the three-week wonders because uh, amazingly we were supposed to have picked up all that amount of knowledge in, in a, a mere three weeks um but it wasn't just the lawyers it was known rather um irreverently as the vicars and tarts course because um you had professionally qualified cadets from all sorts of different professions you had um the doctors the dentists even the vets and the lawyers and the padres who were all thrown together to do this um short course um because we didn't need to know uh, all sorts of um, highly intricate detail about infantry tactics and um, weapon systems and that sort of thing, because we were going to be practicing in our respected professions in uniform. Um, so, um, so it made sense, to, uh, sort of with an economy of scale, if you like, to put all the professionally qualified cadets in one course, um, which was quite entertaining because we had uh, I suppose there were about 45 of us on the course, ranging from fairly slightly overweight sort of consultants in their 40s who decided very late on in their medical career to uh, join the army. Um, some very warlike padres, um, which was quite surprising. Um, and then there were, the, there were us lawyers, there were six lawyers actually on my course, um, and a few, and a handful of vets and, uh, that was um, the makeup of the, of the course, and we were all three week wonders at the end of it. Um, you... oh, sorry, you asked about stigma or you know any sort of prejudice 
against us for having only completed such a short period? Um, the answer is not really, because I think everybody realised the rationale that I, I've just explained for doing that short course, um, and provided that your doctor could stitch you up efficiently or your lawyer um, could avoid you being stitched up, to put it another way, um, or your, you know, um, padre gave you all the pastoral advice and help that you needed when you were, when you needed it. They weren't really fussed that you didn't necessarily um, have all the other skills that an infantry officer might have, for example. They didn't really expect that. So um, I suppose there were one or two people who probably thought we were just a bloody nuisance and who needs a lawyer when you're trying to kill people. Um, but um, generally speaking, uh, there wasn't a problem. I think there's a really interesting question that we're going to come on to about how your role changes and whether or not kind of that perception of, you know, why do I need a lawyer in a, in a war zone actually mm. kind of changes with time. Because certainly these days we kind of feel a bit more as though we, we reflect on these issues of legality and, and so on that little bit more. But I think we'll get to that because first I want to ask mm -hmm. a very kind of nerdy legal question that comes completely from kind of me as a, a military law historian. Um, and it's about how the military legal system that you had to deal with kind of operates. How does it work? What did you have to do day to day? And, and perhaps most interestingly within all of that is what were the challenges that you found yourself dealing with and that ended up frustrating you? Well, <laughs> um, well, I'll start with the, the system, if you like. Um, uh, it's changed a bit as everything does um, since, uh, since I started um, in that um, the Army, Navy and the Air Force were all uh, subject to different specific statutes which set out their disciplinary system. There was the Army Act um, of, and, and the Air Force Act, separate statutes, pretty much identical actually, both 1955. And then there was something called the Naval Discipline Act 1957, which was quite different from the Army and the Air Force, the Navy being so much older and so much more different, if you like, um, from the other two services. Um, and the effect of those statutes on those serving within their respective services is that um, from the moment you sign up, you are subject to, in the Army, the Army Act. Um, and that means that um, military jurisdiction applies to you at all times whilst you're serving, wherever you're serving in the world, which is a big difference from um, a civilian on his holidays um, in exotic parts, because um, generally speaking, the way the law works is that jurisdiction is geographic. So once you enter a particular country, you're subject to the law of that country and cease to be subject to the law of your own country. Um, but a soldier carries the British law um, in the guise of the, the Army Act, as it was then, um, wherever he goes, as well as being subject to domestic jurisdiction. And that can lead to issues of double jeopardy, potentially. So in order to resolve that, when soldiers are sent overseas on duty, Normally, there's a, a, a treaty or um, possibly even just a bilateral memorandum of understanding with the host nation to resolve any uh, 
issues like that of double jeopardy to avoid him being tried twice for the same offence. So, so a soldier um, in this country is subject to um, military discipline, which um, includes quite a number of offences, which are only offences that can be committed by soldiers. For example, being absent without leave. If you're late for work as a civil servant, you won't find yourself prosecuted for being absent without leave. But if you're late for work as a soldier um, or you decide not to come to work at all, in which case your absence without leave becomes desertion, um, then you can be prosecuted for it. Um, and there are lots of other offences, things like insubordination, for example, um, which apply to only to military personnel. Um, and... Um, so, and the, the reasons for, or the rationale and the way historically that system has developed is, um, I suppose, twofold in particular. One is because soldiers expect to perform a sort of expeditionary role, if you like. They expect, they must expect to be dispatched to all sorts of far-flung places. Maybe less so these days, but of course, in the days of the British Empire, uh, you know, lots of soldiers spent virtually their entire career overseas. Um, so if you didn't have a system like that um, exercising jurisdiction over them wherever they were sent, then you had a potentially a huge gap in how they were uh, regulated, how their conduct was controlled and so on. Um, and secondly, um, in order to um, enforce the sort of hierarchical structure of uh, a military force um, you need to have um, a, a form of uh, jurisdiction um, which means that if you uh, rebel against that hierarchy if you like there will be consequences um, you have to be able to rely on soldiers doing as they're told effectively, even in very difficult and very frightening circumstances, because that's the only way they win battles. Um, so that's how the military legal system has evolved. Now, um, as of, I'm trying to think of the date, um, it was probably about um, 15 years ago, um, there's a Tri-Service Discipline Act, which um, means that all three services are dealt with under the one statute instead of there being separate Naval Discipline and the Army Act and Air Force Act. Um, and the way it's, uh, or the, the way the Army Legal Services and the, the Air Force and the Naval Legal Services all fit into that is that um, they're responsible for advising the military chain of command on how that law works uh, in the same way as um, a solicitor in private practice advises a client or a solicitor in perhaps a better comparison would be a solicitor in um, corporate practice advises his firm, um, his directors or whatever on how to conduct their business legally. Um, so a big part of the military lawyer's job has always been advising on that military discipline system which starts at a fairly low level with soldiers being punished by their commanding officer in what's called summary dealing, which is kind of the military equivalent of the magistrates, if you like, um, but moves up to the court martial system, which is roughly equivalent to the um, 
Crown Court with its jury trials in civilian life, um, where soldiers are prosecuted for more serious offences. And in those cases, uh, traditionally, the prosecutor um, would be a, a military lawyer, a member of the in the army, a member of the Army Legal Corps, as it's now become the Army Legal Service. Um, but there are other um, areas of work which um, we had to undertake. And it, what, what is most in demand really depends on what's going on at the time. So when I joined, um, there wasn't, a, a, there weren't, there wasn't anything in the way of a war, well, it's a cold war going on, which fortunately stayed cold. Um, but in terms of combat operations, the only show in town when I joined, and it stayed that way for quite a few years, was Northern Ireland. Um, and, um, and that actually was more or less my first posting. I, I, I spent, I joined um, in February, I think by the time I finished Sandhurst, it was February 82. Um, actually, no, I did the course of February. I think I went to my first posting in April. Um, and I was in Aldershot and I thought, well, I joined the army to see the world and all I've done is move about 30 miles west from where I was in London before. But in August, they sent me off to Northern Ireland. So um, it, it didn't take long. Um, and the job there was partly um, a sort of fairly mundane business of helping soldiers out with personal legal issues, partly advising the military chain of command on a variety of stuff. There's all sorts of administrative law within the army as there is outside. Um, but the the sort of theatre-specific role for young military lawyers was um, what they called a flying lawyer, which was advising soldiers who got involved in a firefight, say, with um, the IRA, um, injured or killed somebody. And because it was domestic law, it wasn't a an armed conflict where the law of armed conflict kicks in and because it wasn't a foreign jurisdiction because it was part of the united kingdom of course uk domestic law applied so the, the police the royal Ulster constabulary their default um response in a case like that was to arrest the soldier and he'd be treated as a suspect sometimes a murder suspect um and a soldier a british soldier in those days couldn't just ring up the duty solicitor to come and hold his hand if he was in the middle of some dodgy part of Northern Ireland and in the middle of the night because he wasn't going to get a lot of help and sympathy. So the army filled the gap by providing this flying lawyer service, which was which was much more exciting than my job in London being because I was jumping into helicopters at all times of day and night and flying off to strange places um, sort of in heavily fortified police stations and advising soldiers who'd just been involved in a shootout with terrorists. So that was quite challenging. That really doesn't surprise me in terms of, of what you say there in terms of challenge. Um, it's, I, I'm going to, listeners will be pleased to know that I will resist um, the temptation to start talking about you know, military law from 200 years ago because that's a, that's a very different kettle of fish. But it is interesting the way in which this feels like something that's designed to solve a, a problem that's unique to the army. And in that sense, I think fundamentally, military law hasn't changed. Did you find yourself kind of wishing that there were elements of the law that could change 
um, to enable you to do your job better? Um... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. We well, sometimes I mean when later on in my career, particularly when I was deployed on operations, which I talk about in my book, particularly Kosovo, um, it wasn't necessarily uh, that I felt the law itself needed uh, enormous change. It was uh, that people needed to understand it and implement it uh, a little bit more efficiently and a little bit more um, a little bit more quickly, actually, to respond to the changing military situation on the ground. Because, for example, uh, I mean, I talk about in my book, uh, Rules of Engagement, well, which in which a lawyer obviously has quite a big part in helping to draft them. Um, and it's really no good if you've got a system which is so bureaucratic that getting the rules of engagement changed takes days when you've got stuff going on on the ground which demands a change immediately um, as a matter of life or death. Um, so that would be a, a good example of how, yes, I think, um, you know, things needed improvement and probably still do need improvement. Um, I, I think um, the... Um, for, soldier, for, for junior officers who had a role to play in dealing with discipline within their unit, um, it was quite difficult to keep them up to date and, and, and um, properly trained and educated on what the law required. And mistakes happened too often as a result of that um, deficiency. Similarly with the police, military police, they try very hard to do a good job, but they don't have the day-to-day -day exposure to crime that civilian policemen do. And therefore, you know, the skill is not so easy to maintain. Uh, and that's obviously quite serious if the police get it wrong when they're purporting to arrest people, or interview them or uh, handle evidence um, and things become contaminated, um, the case becomes seriously jeopardised and subsequently taken apart in court by a defence lawyer um, because um, there's been a problem in the earlier stages of investigation because people really didn't have the expertise that they needed. It's interesting hearing you talk about ROA, rules of engagement, ROA, and um, for folks, I'm interested in your take on a film that came out which folks will probably kind of have seen elements of what you're talking about in. So Eye in the Sky came out. It was looking at kind of the morality behind drone strikes. I just wondered if you could just say a few mirror. words. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there is yeah. this scene where she's having a, a discussion with uh, a member of the legal department. And, and there's this friction going on because she's got this pressing need within the role of her character to be cleared to a, a different kind of set of rules because she needs to be able to... Um, carry out a drone strike effectively 
what was your sense watching that? Did mm. you have any reactions where you looked at it and just thought, please, can we, can we get rid of, or did it feel as though it kind of tapped into something that you were dealing with? Um, it was, uh, it was certainly a lot more realistic than a few good men. If you remember that, uh, um, movie about a court martial with Tom Cruise. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was a while ago since I watched, um, the, the rules of engagement, the Iron Sky film. Um, so I can't remember in, in great detail, but I, I seem to remember thinking at the time that it wasn't a bad, you know, it had obviously been fairly carefully researched. Um, and, um, but yes, I mean, I suppose the one thing always to remember is that um, the legal advisor is just that. He's only an advisor. He doesn't make the decisions. It's up to the commanders to make the decisions. And the, very often a senior commander will have a fairly junior legal advisor as the only um, show in town in terms of a, a legal uh, assistance. Um, and sometimes the legal, uh, sorry, the uh, commander's experience rightly outweighs what he's being, how he's being advised. Uh, obviously, lawyers by training tend to be pretty cautious uh in the advice that they give and when you're giving life or death advice that's that's pretty important um uh, we i think tended probably in the british army to have a slightly more cautious approach than perhaps our american jag corps colleagues um who always used to talk about being a green light lawyer in other words um, you know, I want to tell my commander that he can do what it is that he wants to do. And I don't like saying, no, you shouldn't do that or you mustn't do that. I think uh, my experience, most of my colleagues will probably be slightly more cautious than that. I used to think being an Amberlite lawyer was probably about right. Um, uh, I remember one particular case in um, Afghanistan where... Um, it was a multinational headquarters that I worked in, and in fact, um, I I was the only Brit in a, in a, a, an office, a big office of about eight American lawyers. Um, but we all advised uh, at, um, the US as well as um, British commanders um, on the, the, the bulk of the the combat troops were, were American, of course. But we all gave advice the issues were kind of multinational if you like um a particular case i remember was um, somebody who was suspected of planting ieds improvised explosive devices in other words a man a, a sort of homemade um anti-personnel mine um and they had a they had a drone uh, in the area that they wanted to use to take him out um but I thought the evidence of what he was doing was unclear and needed to be better before a decision was made. Um, and they got very impatient and, uh, and they said, well, we've only got fuel in this thing for another half an hour or whatever. Um, and the guy will be gone if we don't get on with it. And I said, well, you still need to check more carefully before I would advise that you... Um, that you target him and it turned out that he was actually planting onions um and uh fortunately we managed to work that out in time before somebody actually pressed um the, the fire button or the trigger or whatever you call it on a drone 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, but sometimes you get it wrong, of course. But on that occasion, it was lucky that we that we did what we did. Um, and there were quite a few occasions. There was another one where um, somebody had come up with some great weapon system which could effectively detonate, rather like a, a flail tank on the beaches of Normandy in 1944. This thing could, from the air, detonate IEDs for some distance on the ground. So it's a great mine clearance system. The trouble is, though, you're basically doing what you're doing blind. You're just pressing button and anything within range that picks up that signal will go off. But you can't see the context. You can't see who's walking past at the time uh, or what's driving over it at the time. And so to do that amounts to would amount to an indiscriminate use of force without any proper precautions. Um, and so I said, no, you shouldn't do that. It sounds a great idea, but legally it's not. Um, so, yeah, so, so going back to the film you were talking about, it, I thought it was not bad in illustrating that sort of issue. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you. Gosh, that could have, a couple of those situations could have gone very wrong there, couldn't it? Um, yeah. As the title of, of your book suggests, obviously, you were sent out to Kosovo to advise on legal matters to a British commander out there. Um, obviously, mm. when joining NATO forces, that does come with some sort of promotion and movement and so on. Yeah. How would had your duties changed with that move? What were you doing in Kosovo that maybe you hadn't done previously? Um, it was a massive change, actually, as it happened, because my previous job had been in a prosecuting office dealing purely with criminal issues, um, preparing cases for trial by court-martial, varying from the, the sort of fairly, um, or, or advising commanders on summary dealing. So, so from very minor stuff uh, to fairly serious um, criminal matters, I ended up prosecuting with a colleague um, a murder at once on one occasion in Germany, which was committed by a, in fact, uh, it was an army wife who murdered her husband. He was a sergeant for Royal Engineers, because even civilians come under military jurisdiction in some circumstances overseas. So I was doing all that stuff, which is purely um, criminal law, really. And then I got posted almost by default um, to this uh, NATO headquarters, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. Um, where virtually none of the work was criminal law. Um, 
but it all involved the law of armed conflict. So, in other words, the, the legal issues that kick in when um, uh, uh, something uh, 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 a war breaks out or is about to break out or some form of armed conflict at a lower level even. Um, so, and I hadn't really um, been involved in the law of armed conflict for, for some years. Um, as I said, when I, when I joined, um, the only uh, sort of combat operation the British Army was involved in was Northern Ireland. Then over the years, um, for various reasons, we got involved in an awful lot more, and it was Bosnia, um, it was the first Gulf War, and then, as we know now, then there was the second Gulf War, and then there was Afghanistan. You know, we've got quite used to soldiers going off to places often hot and dusty um, and fighting wars which we weren't used to before. So suddenly the requirement for lawyers to be able to advise on law one conflict as opposed to largely military discipline, had uh, rocketed up. Anyway, so I arrived at, at um, the headquarters of the ARC. My boss was a chap called General Mike Jackson, who was quite ferocious uh, in his reputation. He was actually very charming, but he, 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 as I said in my book, he didn't take prisoners. Um, and it also happened, that, coincidentally, that I was promoted to half-colonel at that time. Um, and as a half colonel, you're expected to know your stuff. Um, so I had this rather ferocious new boss. I had newly been promoted, so I was sort of slightly nervous of um, the responsibility that came with it. Uh, we also had um, quite a sophisticated IT system in the office, which again I wasn't used to. I was pretty luddite when it came to you know how I did my work. So all this stuff had to be learned in quite a hurry. Um, and then just to just for the icing on the cake, as opposed to spending my tour quietly going on exercise for two years and sort of playing at soldiers, this cost of operation kicked off. Um, and there are various sort of legal um, steps which you expect to be taken before things get as extreme as that. The first is, legally, that there has to be a lawful justification for embarking on the operation. And really, there are only two legal grounds in which, on which you can um, uh, go to war with another country. One is if you are acting in self-defence, um, and that's a fairly... It sounds simple, but actually that is the subject of a lot of debate itself because the US for example have a very sort of liberal uh, understanding of the term self-defense we tend to have a slightly more restricted term uh, understanding in the UK but anyway so it's either self-defense or the other basis on which you can attack another country is if the UN Security Council says so in a resolution um, well with Kosovo Neither of those applied because uh, nobody was threatened. No other country was threatened by the Serbs who were um, who were molesting the Albanian Kosovars in Kosovo. Um, so there was no self-defence issue there for NATO, and nor was there a Security Council resolution. The reason for that, largely, being that um, there are five permanent members of the Security Council, of which two are Russia and China. And neither Russia nor China were going to 
agree to such a resolution because they were chums with the Serbs apart from anything else. Um, so people used to come to my office and say, is this really going to happen? You know, it's sounding as if uh, it's getting a bit serious and we're all sort of um, preparing to deploy and go to war. And I said, well, no, I, it can't happen because there's, not, there's no lawful justification. Anyway, how wrong can you be? Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the politicians came up with a, a novel um, justification, which is called humanitarian intervention, um, which I think morally was probably perfectly sound, but still legally, um, it had me scratching my head. And um, even to this day, when the law has evolved, that was 20 years ago, um, the law has evolved you know, as it tends to over the years. But even to this day, the notion of humanitarian intervention being a legal ground for attacking another country, which is what NATO did with its air campaign, um, is, in my view, pretty dubious. Um, so that was the first of those steps, which I would have expected that didn't happen. However, at my level, you just have to get on with it and advise the commanders who are in your above you in the chain of command. Um, we um, so we went to Macedonia um, to be prepared to go into Kosovo once Mr. Milosevic, the president of Serbia, decided to throw in the towel, having been bombed, which NATO initially calculated would take four days. And it took 78, I think, in the end. So we were sitting in Macedonia waiting for this to happen um, so that we could then go into Kosovo and take control. One of the things that I expected then was that we would have our status in Macedonia, our legal status, clarified. And I mentioned earlier on a few minutes ago that normally the way that's done is that you have a treaty with your host country so that you can answer the question, which actually the boss asked me once, was what if a NATO soldier gets drunk and kills a Macedonian citizen when he's driving a military vehicle on duty? Well, that should be clear because your treaty would deal with the question of jurisdiction in cases like that. But normally, if it's an on-duty offence, jurisdiction would fall with the country who sends that soldier to war. So if he's a British soldier, it would be British military jurisdiction, for example. If it's an off-duty offence and it's nothing to do with his military duty, the general principle would be that the uh, host nation's domestic legal system would have jurisdiction. But in our case, we had no treaty, um, largely because the Foreign Office hadn't got around to signing what they needed to sign um, to bring the relevant treaty into force. So one of my jobs which became you know i had to keep on at for weeks and weeks literally on end was badgering um the brits up the military chain of command and then out it to the foreign office to get this bloody thing signed off it wasn't difficult it was all it was all there um so that our legal status could be our soldiers legal status could be clarified um, and in the meantime, you had from time to time Macedonian policemen picking up soldiers, sometimes traffic offences, sometimes uh, slightly more serious stuff, and saying, well, we don't know about uh, you know, any sort of agreement with your 
country, as far as you're, we're concerned, you're in our country and we're going to deal with you. Um, so that was a problem, um, which never really got terribly satisfactorily solved um, during my time. Um, and then uh, the issue of rules of engagement, which I've also talked about before. The whole purpose of rules of engagement is to um, ensure that when soldiers are opening fire, um, they're doing so lawfully and they're doing so in accordance with uh, the political direction of their military operation. And they're able to um, act efficiently as a soldier. In other words, you know, complete the mission um, successfully. Um, and different countries all have their own national rules of engagement. When, but when they join together in an alliance or a coalition like NATO, you need to have a uniform set of rules of engagement for all countries so that the commander knows um, if he wants to rely on an American infantry um, uh, battalion or he wants to rely on an Italian engineer squadron um, or he wants to rely on special forces from um, Belgium, they're all bound by the same rules of engagement and they will act predictably, if you like, and lawfully. Um, but unfortunately, NATO were so frantically busy with the, the fast-moving Kosovo situation that they never actually got around to drafting a set of rules of engagement that covered us as a force in um, Macedonia. And even when we got into Kosovo, the rules of engagement were not as clear as they should have been and not as properly or widely disseminated as they should have been. Because soldiers on the ground need to know where they stand. It's just an incredible headache from the sounds of things that you had to deal with. I mean, how do you even begin to, to start to offer legal advice in a situation where the law is, is so muddy? It's incredible. But I'm not yeah. entirely surprised that everything has this air of sort of flying by the seat of your pants either. It does sort of have that. Mm. That seems to quite often be the case in these things. Um, and folks yeah. like yourself do a remarkable job of kind of muddling through and, and finding a way to make it work. Can I, <laughs> and feel free to, to decline this question, can I just ask about your homecoming after your time in Kosovo? What was it like kind of coming back and, and dealing with that change of pace? Well, I was, I suppose I was, I was, um, I, I wouldn't want to sort of exaggerate the, um, nature of my business on operations. I mean, I wasn't in the front line. I was not somebody who was likely to be coming home suffering from severe PTSD, having seen horrific scenes of violence and mutilation and um, and endured sort of daily terror myself, which a lot of soldiers genuinely do have to endure, even, even today. Um, so, uh, but having said that, uh, obviously, uh, this was an operation which was sort of evolving day by day. It wasn't like a steady state operation in a force which had been sitting um, sort of on garrison duties for years on end. And you just slotted in and did your tour and came home again and, you know, uh, and um, kept things ticking over. It was a quite a rapidly evolving operation. Um, so um, there were times in it, 
both in Macedonia before we moved into Kosovo, but and also once we got up there, where uh, things were, you were sort of tend to be fairly anxious about what the next day was going to bring. Um, so, so obviously returning home was a, a massive relief from all that, and um, and living in the Balkans, it's in those days anyway, and I don't know how different it is today. Um, it's it's fairly rough in places and um, life is not as you know um, as valued as it we're used to um, and so um, I remember being very conscious of how um, it, having lived in a in some pretty grotty circumstances for several months um, as I say not quite knowing what was going to come next um to get home to be relieved of all that sort of burden of trying to predict and deal with these legal issues and also the just day-to-day um keeping yourself fit and healthy and safe and also running an office with various people you're also responsible for trying to ensure that they were ha- they were uh felt the same suddenly having all that lifted and and moving from very in those days uh, a very undeveloped part of sort of south central europe back to germany with its you know hedges cut short back and sides um very civilized very um well organized um and in fact i moved i I moved back in the middle of summer so the weather was lovely and suddenly i had you know a month's leave at the end of the tour of duty um and i could just with my family and um do normal things again it was it was fabulous it was um it was absolutely wonderful but um and but certainly the um experiences of the previous few months were very very vivid um and i think probably always will be because uh compared to northern ireland which was very exciting because it was my first experience of the army certainly in operations even in northern ireland you were in pretty much your own country it's part of the united kingdom um you um my exposure to danger there was you know intermittent um but it was a i was part of an operation that had been going on for years and it was keeping the lid on things and hoping to gradually push back against the insurgency towards eventually a political solution um, which everybody was sort of reasonably confident would one day come. And apart from the odd atrocity, you know, one week to the next, life was relatively predictable. It wasn't like that in Kosovo. Even in Afghanistan, it was much more like that. It was much more, it was a much bigger operation. And um, as we've seen in recent months, a potentially equally significant operation in terms of what happened to people in the end and number of people dying or whatever else um but nevertheless i moved into a steady state office in in kabul where you know which had been working in a particular way for many years and continued to work like that for many years afterwards kosovo was short sharp very vivid um very exciting um and quite worrying quite at times so getting home was a great relief and, and you just mentioned there obviously you, you've given us some stories about the time that you have spent in Afghanistan obviously we know that 
the withdrawal has happened in mm. recent months and we've all seen the images on the news of the, the withdrawal of the troops which has been very hard to watch in some circumstances to just see the absolute devastation and, and the yes. suffering that is going on there at the moment compared with your then experiences and I suppose reflecting on your experiences in Afghanistan um what what are your thoughts on the current situation there at the moment I feel desperately sad about it because I I didn't get to see much of the country. I'd love to have seen a lot more of it. The, the, the impression I got was actually of um, um, uh, uh, people who lived a very, very unsophisticated life on the whole. I mean, it's a rural economy. This is part of the problem and always has been. It's been it's such a rugged place. Um, that it's it's always been impossible to govern really from from Kabul, um, and the people are incredibly tough, I think, um, and they have so little, um, and um, they've lived for generations through strife, um, and I just think it's terribly sad that that things are know better now in fact probably a lot worse than they were 20 years ago when that whole operation kicked off um and i mean who am i to sort of moralize about the rights and wrongs but if you remember that the um the rationale for the whole operation to begin with was that bin laden was being sheltered there um the taliban refused to give him up um, and uh, the US um, uh, decided that um, they would deal with it largely themselves, although of course it was a NATO operation right from the start, um, the ISAF operation. It was the first time in history that Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which is the mutual defence article, was, was invoked. Um, basically that an attack on one member of the coalition is an attack on all of them. Um, and that was the legal basis for the original operation in 2001. Um, but, you know, now here we are um, 21 years later, nearly, um, and um, we've left it in a shocking state. And I think it was, it, it needn't have been like that at all. I mean, it's not as if, we went through some very, very bloody periods, in particularly in, in the Americans and the Brits in Helmand province, but it hasn't actually been uh, like that for some years now. Um, and it, it didn't take that much commitment compared to what had gone before to kind of keep a lid on things and, and probably um, with more patience to have achieved a much more satisfactory outcome. Um, so I think it's absolutely shocking. And for, for all sorts of reasons, the losses and the money that's been expended by um, dozens of countries, including our own, um, in contributing to what people, I think, genuinely thought was going to be a better outcome. And the, the way the country has been just um left to fend for itself yet again i mean they had 10 years of the russians they saw them off um 
and everybody thought, I suppose, hoped that the end of the ISAF operation would be more um, satisfactory. But I'm afraid we haven't done ourselves any favours, and uh, we'll know who the sort of <laughs> um, who the most powerful nation involved were. And I think it's a, a great shame that others weren't able to perhaps step in when the US decided that they'd had enough. But unfortunately, um, there just isn't the, um, there's no other individual nation that could do it. And there isn't a sufficient will um, for a, a sort of coalition uh, to take their place. What happened in the end for you? What made you decide to leave the army? Because you've now retired, I believe. Oh, well, I, I, I decided to leave the army because I reached the age of 60 and I had to leave the army, unfortunately. Um, the, the armed forces is still an unusual organisation in that they're uh, legally able to discriminate you, against you on grounds of age. And so by the time you reach uh, that particular ceiling, that's it. In fact, most people have to have to leave at the age of 55. Um, it's um, it, it, the... the, the the professionally qualified, like like the lawyers and the and the doctors in particular, obviously you don't get to join the army in the first place until you're already qualified, which in my case was at the age of 25. Whereas your colleagues in the infantry have been commissioned already for four or five years by then. So if so, they let you serve on an extra five years as a lawyer, so that you can maximise your pension uh, earning service. So to, to make up for you, your loss of that in the early years of your career. So, so yeah, I mean, if, I, uh, if I'd been able to, to carry on serving beyond that age, I'd have very happily done so. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I'm just very grateful they let me serve till 60 and I didn't have to get out 55. Otherwise, I'd have to go and find another proper job. Um, but, um, yeah, so that, that was why. Um, having said that, of course... Uh, I don't, I'm not really complaining. I mean, it is a young man's profession being a soldier. And uh, and if you've got sort of old farts like me hanging around indefinitely, um, then it, it reduces the pull-through opportunity for younger people, you know, coming in at the bottom and uh, as, as they must do. And so obviously with your, with your book, um, what do you hope that people will take away from from your book, especially in terms of maybe legal practice in the armed forces, maybe something they hadn't known about? Like it's a topic that military law specifically, I know a fair bit about military policing in my particular time period that I see, but military law is something that I wouldn't know much about. So do you hope that people will take away some new insights? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, well, I, I just hope it, it will be interesting and potentially of of interest as a something to consider as a career for for young lawyers um, because um, as I've said today and I hope I conveyed in my book I found it you know fascinating it was very exciting if you are by nature rather restless as I am it works really well because you're posted every two or three years. You don't have time to get bored. If you hate your boss or he hates you or she hates you, then you know that 
in both know that in two or three years time you're going your separate ways and you probably never clap eyes on each other again so you know for all sorts of reasons and and it's a worthwhile business i mean i think the armed forces are truly um fantastic people on the whole that it it it, it, it only works so well in all three of our armed services because it is made up of really good dedicated hard-working um people and so they're great people to work with they're great clients to have as a lawyer um and um you know so i would commend it as a as a career for anybody who wants to be a lawyer to to consider as you know out of out of the mainstream even if you if you if, if you only do 10 years or something you have a lot of fun and then you can move sideways back into the civilian profession um the um it, it's sometimes been kind of in jeopardy because there are some people who say well actually you know a civilian could probably do this a civilian lawyer can probably do this and uh, uh, and we might even get um we might even get um better people if we go to civilian practice but there are there are and i can understand why for certain types of legal advice people would say that they might say well um if you're advising on human rights or employment law which military lawyers have to do nowadays um you know why do you need to be in uniform um but so there, there's a danger there for the for the whole profession of, of sort of being a military lawyer but when it comes to operational law the, the the commander needs to have somebody with him in the field who can't just say well i'm sorry um my contract says i go home now um He's actually got to be in the chain of command so that he turns up when he's bloody well told to turn up and he's prepared and trained and, you know, um, and capable of dealing with um, operating in the field fairly close to, you know, where the nasty stuff's going on. So I think that's really the, why operational law is, is um, the way to go. And also, uh, literally 200 years ago, in around 1811, 1812, and apologies, listeners, yes, this is my research, but a guy called Charles Manners Sutton, who was the Judge Advocate General at the time, decided that employing civilian lawyers really wasn't working for the army and was responsible for this major shift of let's bring in officers with a little bit of legal knowledge and let's focus on professionalising them. So, you know, probably best not to go back on the mistakes of 200 years. Um, James, this has been... (laughs) fascinating genuinely i've loved it i know our listeners will have loved it military operations from kosovo to kabul we will put it in the history hack bookstore or folks can go directly to i believe it was pen and sword who published this one wasn't it that's right yeah Hmm. yeah so go directly to the pen and sword website folks or click the link in the description um please don't go to amazon for one very simple reason same old rant that i always have jeff bezos will turn all of your money into rocket fuel and James, poor guy, will not see a fraction of the royalties he would get if you went directly to the publisher. So please go buy it direct. Um, but James, thank you so much for joining us. This has been genuinely fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for asking me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.